Hello, and welcome to this episode of Not a Lady, a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman podcast. My name is Kelly. And I'm Sarah. And this is episode two of season two, titled Sanctuary. But before we jump in, we're going to take a look back at our last episode, which was episode 2.1, The Race. You know how, Kelly, we had this conversation about I was super judgy about people's horse names? Yeah. Recently on Facebook, there was a discussion where someone asked a question, what was Sully's horse's name? And people listed off like, oh yeah, Hank had Hurricane, and Matthew had Scout, and Dr. Mike had Bear and Flash, but no one could come up with what Sully's horse's name was. And my favorite comment on this whole thread of these people discussing what the horse's name was, this person wrote in, based on the fact that his wolf's name is Wolf, I'm going to take a wild guess and say his horse's name is Horse. (laughs) Not wrong, not a bad thought. So accurate and sad, a little sad as well, but it made me laugh (laughs) and it was super relevant since we were just talking about the race. We had some lessons, very simple lesson from Patulis on Instagram. I believe that the town learned to never underestimate Dr. Mike. And I just think if they haven't learned that already, are they ever going to learn it, right? It's not a wrong lesson. I'm just saying like, when are they going to actually not need to learn that lesson anymore? (laughs) Meanwhile, on Facebook, Elizabeth Porterfield wrote in actually quite a long, a long little write-up. The whole episode is about breaking gender stereotypes. Dr. Mike in the race, Brian with the pie. They both excel in their quote-unquote atypical activities, showing it doesn't matter who you are, you can do whatever you want. There is also the storyline of Doc Cassidy and his skepticism of Dr. Mike's diagnosis since she is a woman. While Doc Cassidy didn't take her advice or medical expertise, you do see that Dr. Mike knows what she is talking about when it comes to the field of medicine. Again, showing gender doesn't matter. The most pivotal moment is at the end, when Jake takes the winning wreath and puts it on Flash. While Jake started off as not the biggest fan of Dr. Mike, he is always the first to admit that she deserves recognition. He was her first patient. He recognized her winning the race. It's also nice to see a prominent figure in the town go against the quote-unquote standards for what he should believe. In this case, supporting his friend, Hank. Thoughts on that? (laughs) It's just funny because I feel like, unfortunately, everything that happens in the episode we're going to talk about will kind of... Negate. Undo everything. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't usually feel that way about Jake. Like, I do think that... At the the end scene, him taking the wreath to Flash is a big moment, but I'm not sure if I'd say he's usually the first one to admit when he's wrong or take Dr. Mike's side, but I I do think it's a pivotal moment for him. And like I said, unfortunately, I'm not sure he'll stick with that for this episode. I never thought about the fact that he was her first patient because after she got her tooth yanked, she gave him the something for the cut on his hand. Sav, yeah. In this episode, we did talk about how earlier he is also the person who validated her story to Doc Cassidy. Doc Cassidy still ignored it. Right. But I was like, that's interesting because in this episode, it was obvious that actually Jake was being quite intentional toward Dr. Mike 
when he wasn't with his buddies being like, oh, women yeah. aren't as good as men. And I know we've talked about this before that Lauren, Hank, and Jake together make each other worse. So it's interesting when we do get Jake stepping away from that and choosing to support Dr. Mike or just do, yeah, do what he knows is the right thing versus what his friends would tell him to do. Another write-in on Instagram from Mommy of Amelia. I like the way she took over and rode Flash by herself. I couldn't stand the character of Dr. Cassidy at all. Also, the fact that they showed boys can also bake was wonderful. For me, the writers were way ahead of their time so often. Gender problems still exist today, sometimes even more. Women have always had to fight harder. I always adored their way of thinking and feeling in this episode. It meant a lot to me growing up with this wonderful show and the topics it stands for. I'm thankful for that. I think we did talk about how it does cover a lot of issues, and this is one we haven't seen too too frequently, other than obviously talking about Dr. Mike being a doctor, even though she's a woman, but yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned in the last episode that it's been a hot minute since we've seen someone really give her a lot of crap for being a woman doctor like we we actually toward the end of the season got to the point where people did come to her from the town with medical concerns right our last write-in on instagram mary kate scallon said i love the season two opener i think it's one of the lighter hearted and quote-unquote fun episodes of the entire series this episode is the embodiment of dr mike's character she's bold smart funny witty funny and a risk taker i also love when sully was trying to coach her on how to walk like a man and he smacks her on the back their exchange here cracks me up every time Well, you think we should get started with this episode? Let's do it. Season 2, Episode 2, Sanctuary, aired on October 2nd, 1993. It was directed by Daniel Atias. This is his first of what will be three directorial runs on Dr. Quinn. He would go on after Dr. Quinn to work on shows like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, House, Entourage, and Alias. Writers for this episode, Joseph Anderson. This is his fourth run as writer. The last episode we saw written by him was Portraits. And I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but Joseph Anderson is also a Dr. Quinn producer. He did produce more than 73 episodes of Dr. Quinn. And before we start talking about the episode, I did want to just put a little disclaimer here that this episode does deal with the subject of domestic violence and domestic abuse. We obviously don't take that issue lightly. And if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, please don't be afraid to ask for help. In the United States, the hotline for domestic abuse is 1-800-799-SAFE, which is 7233. There is also, if you go online to the website domesticshelters.org, they have resources for international organizations that serve people impacted by domestic violence because we know that amidst those that listen to us we have a number of different countries and so we want to mention this that this is a topic of this episode maybe upsetting to some people 
we want to take a moment to bring awareness to it that is still something very present in our world today and uh, you should never be afraid to to ask for help because there are resources and systems out there that are structured to help people. I want to say and as we talk about this today I have never personally experienced domestic abuse so I don't want to say something insensitive or just not knowing we're going to try and do our best to to discuss this, you know, in a healthy way while recognizing like this is a TV show and it's for entertainment, but for some people this is their life experience. So we're going to do our best to to balance that conversation as well as not shying away from talking about it. So we start this episode with an interesting scene in which town is empty. Not many times we've seen that. And we see that a woman who is covered up with a shawl is walking towards the mercantile. Dr. Quinn, the horror movie. This is, oh, this is how it opens. That reminds me of that thing they did. I can't remember what it was. Do you remember when they did that? They did that thing where they brought, they made like a little commercial. It was like about weed or, or like opioids or oh, something. Oh, Dr. Quinn morphine woman. <laughs> where okay, they yeah. tried to, they made it like Dr. Quinn, but Breaking Bad style. Yeah. So funny. Right. But, and they brought back, like, all the main cast. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Anyway, that's what made me think of that when you said that. But we do get to see this woman's face because there's a man riding a horse, and the horse frightens her, and she turns around, and we see her face. And it is Barbara Babcock, who will be joining as a regular cast member. Spoiler. Listeners know that I am returning to Dr. Quinn after many years of like being away. So Kelly has all these episodes much more fresh in her mind than I do. So I did some research on Barbara Babcock as an actress because I was like, I don't even know if I've seen her in anything else. She started acting in 1951. Before doing Dr. Quinn, she had been in Star Trek, the original series. She was in the 1968 Mission Impossible Murder, She Wrote, and right before doing Dr. Quinn, she had done the film Far and Away, which is a Ron Howard film starring Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. It's like pretty iconic for both of their careers. She stopped acting in 2004. One of the last things she did was Home Alone 4, which I was like, I didn't even know there was a Home Alone 4. <laughs> I didn't either. I was just about to say, I didn't know there was a fourth one. It's got a totally different kid as Kevin. So, so weird. But that's off track. What I did learn about Barbara Babcock that I think you will also find super cool, Kelly, is that her dad was in the army and she spent most of her childhood growing up in Tokyo in Japan. So she's a hmm. TCK. And for those of you who don't know... TCK stands for third culture kid, which is a person who spends any portion of their developmental years in a country outside their their parents' own culture, often passport country. And Kelly and I are both TCKs as well, seeing as our parents worked overseas. We grew up in parts of Europe and Africa. So I got really excited because I'm like, oh my word, TCK is showing up and representing in film. Dr. Quinn. Yeah. 
So anyway, I totally distracted us. Let's return to the creepy scene of the woman stumbling <laughs> through so an creepy. empty Colorado Springs. And there's a collie. I've never seen this dog before. There's just this random collie. I actually thought that too, where I was like, whose dog is this? I don't remember any other dogs that we've really seen yeah, on this show. Yeah. But. And of course, she bangs on the door of the mercantile. And Lauren, being prime cranky old man (laughs) is grumbling all the way down the stairs only to open the door and find Dorothy. And that is where we learn her name for the first time. She looks injured. And when Lauren asks what happened to her, she states that her horse threw her and she fell off. We also find out that she's deciding to leave her husband. And this is kind of the only information we really get about her. But Lauren decides to take her over to the clinic where she will meet Dr. Mike. At the clinic, Dr. Mike is checking out Dorothy and doing a good patient... What do you call it? I already forget. Where she asks questions. History. History. She's taking a good history. And she's asking for more details about the fall as Dorothy sticks with her story. But some of the injuries do not reflect that of just falling off your horse. We do learn that Dorothy is Maud Lauren's late wife who passed away during the pilot. And we learn that Dorothy Jennings, that's her full name, is Maud's younger, younger sister? Older sister. Actually, I don't remember. I don't think they actually give those details. Just her sister. She used to visit Colorado Springs often. And then it's kind of revealed, which is our first clue to this marriage relationship, that Dorothy was not able to attend the funeral because the husband had kept the news from her. To not upset her is the story that we get. But yeah, Lauren had written her a letter telling her about Maud, and unfortunately she never got to hear the news about that letter until a few months later. It's also, I think, relevant to say you were talking about Dr. Mike taking a history, doing an exam, and one of the clues is Dr. Mike said, like, these bruises are a week old unless you fell off your horse a week ago. I don't know if anybody knows, but they do teach you that in school. Like, they teach you about certain things to look for, whether it's a child, whether it's an adult, certain things to look for that are not consistent with certain injuries. And that doesn't necessarily have to be related to domestic abuse, but sometimes that happens and patients don't always tell the truth to providers but obviously I'm in clinicals right now so I'm seeing patients every day and I think about these things you know okay well if this is this is the story of what I'm being told that happened so now I'm trying to figure out what the body did during that and in this case Dr. Mike already seems to be a bit suspicious about what could have gone on she thinks okay falling off a horse recently what would these things look like and so I think that's pretty cool and I don't know I just felt like I didn't really know that's something we would learn in school until we did and now I'm getting to apply it to build off of that I studied education as part of my undergrad and they also teach this to teachers because often educators are the first who would be seeing signs right not everyone does even get to go to a doctor for the doctor to be able to look for those things but like school nurses and teachers who see kids every day They do also talk us through, yeah, some of the signs and some of the behaviors and just questions to ask. 
And, and it's not just for, like you said, not just for domestic abuse, but also for students, especially since I work with secondary students, like self-harm that are related to all those kind of issues that often are very serious and kept very secret. Right. So Dr. Mike kind of examines her again, and Dorothy thanks her and leaves the clinic. And at this point, Sully arrives. Don't say it. Don't even dare say it. He's like, hey, at least this time we see him walking up and then he takes a drink out of the horse watering trough, which seems disgusting to me, but okay. Just a reminder for all our listeners, (laughs) Kenny Rogers was soaking his infected (laughs) foot in that same trough. It's fine. He'll have issues later. What can I say? (laughs) They all probably have Giardia. Anyway... So Sully mentions that actually he knows Dorothy and almost immediately Sully says she didn't fall off her horse. I've heard about her husband and he's probably going to come looking for her once he sobers up. It's kind of interesting because I always just forget that like Sully's been around for a while. You know what I mean? So like he knows people even though sometimes it seems Mm -hmm. like he doesn't have close relationships with a ton Mm -hmm. of people in town. He does know what's going on. You can infer. See, I learned things in English class. <laughs> what Sully's saying is that Dorothy's husband is harming her. Now we have our title sequence. We do? Yes. The next scene, and I don't know if this is the first time we've been there, but we're upstairs in Lauren's home. Dorothy is in Abigail's room, which her room looks mostly untouched. And of course, there's Lauren's reaction to... Dorothy being in there, and she's wearing one of Maud's dresses, and Lauren feels mad about all of it. What are you doing in this room? How do you know your sister would want you to wear that dress? And then he tries to convince her not to leave her husband, and Dorothy talks about like she, has, she hasn't been happy for a long time. They start having a kind of, it's sort of an evasive conversation about Maud and Maud's relationship with Lauren and Lauren says some things that I think at least for me as a viewer made me kind of feel a little uncomfortable in the moment I think later they kind of explain better but in the moment you know he's like we respected each other but I'm not talking about this and since we already know there's like this hint of domestic abuse I'm kind of like I don't quite understand what's happening but it's obvious the purpose of this scene is to show that Dorothy and Lauren have a long history that they haven't talked about I would assume in years right I know I wonder where Dorothy lives Denver I don't know that would be my guess it can't be too far right so it's probably still Colorado unless she's coming all the way from Kansas or something but what we also learned from that scene is that Dorothy doesn't seem super welcome, and she ends the scene by saying that she won't be staying long, mm. even though she needs a place to stay because she needs time to figure out what she's doing. The next time we will see her is in the next scene where she's actually at the cemetery visiting Maud's grave. Dr. Mike comes to talk with her, and we learn what you've already kind of alluded to, which is that Lauren asked Dorothy to marry him, and Dorothy said no, and so he asked Maud, her sister. Um, Which is so weird. <laughs> imagine if someone asked, like, asked me, asked to marry you, and then married you. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, it's kind of hello, little women, right? <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that. 
It kills me. I think back then, it I guess it did happen, but... Yeah. But I, I like that Dorothy says that Maud and her used to be really close, but after that happened, they grew apart. I know, that's sad. Like, it makes sense why you'd grow apart, but then you're also like, well, was... Dorothy didn't seem like she would be that upset about it because she kind of had control of the situation, but then you wonder if Maude felt like a second choice, so then she's upset about it, so she wants to put distance because that basically means your husband's had feelings for your sister. like, And now your sister's going to be ever-present in both Mm. of your lives for forever because you're related. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess it has to do with that. But Dr. Mike ends up talking about her sisters. Yeah. Which is kind of neat because we only know so much about them and we haven't met any of them or really seen any of them other than maybe briefly in the pilot. I think one of the sisters is in a photo or something. Well, they have like a family photo. And we do get official confirmation that Dorothy's husband has been beating her. It started when her children were young and so Dorothy started taking it to protect the kids and hoped that when the kids got old enough and moved out that it would stop, but it hasn't. I mean, and I don't know how much we want to go into this, but this is, I think, a very accurate representation of a lot of stories of domestic abuse. The next scene is kind of one of my favorites, actually. (laughs) We're at the reservation and Snowbird is, oh, well, originally we don't know it's Snowbird. Sorry. Someone's wife is mad. (laughs) And is throwing their belongings out of the teepee. Dr. Mike and Sully are there and they just happen to be standing next to Cloud dancing. And Dr. Mike's basically like, oh, gosh, somebody's wife is really upset. I wonder whose teepee that is. (laughs) (laughs) And Cloud dancing, like, very just, like, monotone goes stone-faced. It's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny. And then we discover it's Snowbird who's throwing Cloud dancing's belongings out of their teepee. And why is that, Sarah? I'm going to talk a lot today. I think I learned more in this episode than I've learned in any of our episodes so far. And it's mostly About... to do with Cheyenne culture. Uh, so I have a lot right. a lot to talk about. But the, the simple <laughs> answer of, that we learn is that Cloud Dancing's brother died. And the... <laughs> why did you say it like that? What? I said it weird. Sorry, keep going the way you said that was right. Cloud Dancing's brother died. (laughs) Okay. As a part of Leverett culture, which Leverett tradition is, it's actually the Hebrew custom of marrying your brother's widow. And they don't call it polygamy, taking a second wife. They call it plural marriage as a culture. But there was this tradition of marrying your brother's widow if they didn't have children and therefore ensuring that your brother's family line was passed on. So I have so much to talk about because this this was so fascinating to read about because this episode, I think there's a couple things that as the person who looks a lot into history, it's very hard not to watch this episode through a modern Western lens. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not to say everything was perfect historically and we should just accept it for what it was. And that's not to say like Eastern or Western one is better than the other. It's just that I recognize it's hard for me not to come at this through my Western modern lens. But 
Cheyenne tradition, they practice what was called Aksori local or matrilocal tradition. Cheyenne culture was that the husband, when he is married, he would go and live with the wife's family. So usually there were like clans within the tribes, you know, families within the tribes. So this would be a big reason probably why Snowbird, well, one of many reasons why Snowbird might be upset because marrying a second wife, other than, you know, the obvious reasons why she's mad, but also this is going to mean a familial shift where if she's the first wife and he takes a second wife there is a joining of a clan that is probably not her own Hmm. i didn't think about that i learned a lot of things like this that i was like oh i never would have thought of that either the other thing is history going forward and i just want to mention it now because it is obviously going to become an influence is that the matrilocal tradition was the original tradition of the Cheyenne. However, with the establishment of the dog soldiers, which is happening, we know, right kind of in this time period, the Cheyenne society would actually change to patrilocality, which basically means with the establishment of the dog soldiers, there's a shift in Cheyenne culture that because we know the dog soldiers didn't live on the reservations, there's this change to where husband and wife used to go to live with the wife's clan but with the establishment of the dog soldiers the culture starts changing that the wife then goes to live with the husband's i say clan but with the dog soldiers wherever they kind of choose to live so there's an interesting we're in the middle of this shift in Cheyenne tradition. And if you want to learn more about this, I, I did so much reading of like scholarly articles and um, original newspapers, as well as like historical records related to this. Black Kettle, we know Black Kettle. Black Kettle actually in his lifetime had five wives, not all five at the same time. But this is, this is just interesting mm. to keep in mind that this idea of plural marriage was normal. What's also very interesting to me is I think in last last episode we talked about the Cheyenne value of sisterhood. Do you remember me talking about that with Dr. Mike and Snowbird? Yeah, I do. The view of plural marriage in Cheyenne culture, it was not intended. I'm not saying it didn't happen, obviously. Everyone's story is their own, but culturally it was kind of viewed as this opportunity for the wives to become a team. And it was less of this wife versus wife. And it was viewed more as there was often a big division between the men and the women to the point that the women actually had such this strong bond and this value of sisterhood. So this this all comes into play with how Snowbird is reacting, is countercultural to the Cheyenne custom. Which, like I said, for us, we're like, of course she would be mad. Like, of course she would be not okay with this. But by the standards of Cheyenne culture in that day, her reaction is not what has been the norm. And it's not even something that she, culturally, that the Cheyenne would even feel that she should be offended by. It's not an insult to her. Cloud dancing is going to explain to Sully in the in the very next little clip. This is part of the custom. This is part of his duty to his family, right? To his brother who has passed away. I don't remember quite the line, but he says something that basically comes down to, it is my responsibility to choose my tribe over myself. 
And that statement is a perfect example of collectivist culture. I was just thinking about that. Yes. Yeah. Which I learned a lot about when I visited you in Asia. Yes. Oh, yes, you did. Okay, so I'm about to talk about it because I think a lot of people don't understand it. So yes, uh, when I when I lived in China, it really opened my eyes to this idea of collectivist culture versus individualist culture. America and Europe, majority of Europe, are considered mainly individualist cultures, which means they are cultures that value independence. And this doesn't mean independence in the way of like freedom for all. It just means that an individual, a person, considers themselves separate from others. I am my own person. I am defined by what is inside me. Though I may take in the world around me, what defines me is not the influences that are outside of me. What defines me is what is inside of me and what I choose for myself. These are cultures that are very structured into direct communication. This is what I want, what I need, what I'm pursuing. Meanwhile, collectivist cultures, which you're going to see most often, I think people think of Asian culture, but it's not limited to Asian culture. There are some, some African, some definitely if you're looking at North American native culture, you're going to find this collectivist culture. And collectivism as opposed to individualism, which is about independence, collectivism values interdependence. People who are in collectivist cultures see themselves through a lens of how they are connected to other people. So obviously the chief part of that is going to be family and cultural identity. People in collectivist cultures are gonna live their life in terms of their relationships, family, friends, community, then it gets wider to, you know, the school you go to, the job you get. Collectivist cultures, individuals view themselves as members of a group, as opposed to an individualist culture that says, I am myself, me, I. Collectivist culture says, I am a member of this quote-unquote body. There is a value on, on social harmony, and the communication in a collectivist culture is going to be more indirect. Collectivist versus individualist culture, it has to do with values, it has to do with norms, it has to do with communication. It's easy for people like you and me, whose passport country and parents' culture is definitely based in an individualist culture, on face value to look at a collectivist culture and be like, oh, that's so stifling, like they're conformists, they just have to do whatever the group tells them to do. But that's a very limited understanding of the value and the honestly the beauty of this idea of seeing yourself as more than just yourself, but saying like every decision that I make impacts everyone around me and therefore it's not just about me. In the same way that someone who maybe has grown up in a collectivist culture could look at an individualist and be like, wow, they are so selfish and they have totally alienated everyone around them because all their decisions are based on their lives only. And that's the beauty of understanding both is that neither one is perfect, but they both have these values that I think are really beautiful and, and they both can be taken to extremes that are really unhealthy. 
Anyway, so all that being said, I think that was one of the things that I, I found really beautiful about living in China. My Chinese friends, just this value of when they look at themselves, they don't just see only them. They see their family, they see their friends, they see their community. And the choices that they make are not solely based on maybe what they think is best for them, but instead what's best for they're this group that they're a member of. And so, in turn, how does that relate to Dr. Quinn? When cloud dancing makes this statement, I must choose my tribe over myself, that is what he's saying. Like, we don't talk about, like, his brother died. We don't know how his brother died, but that's, right. like, very sad. It's and true. so if this is a way that he can honor his brother's death, of course he's going to have to do that because it's not about what he wants. It's about his family and it's about the tribe. And Snowbird's actions are very countercultural to the Cheyenne way of life up until this point. Right. I did think a lot about that, but I also am like... I can understand why she feels like this. <laughs> totally. That's the thing is right? like, I don't want Cloud Dancing to get a second wife. Like that's it. That's not cool. But again, I'm like, yeah. oh, but that's from my cultural and time period perspective. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Because on the scene afterwards, Dr. Mike, Sully and Cloud Dancing are going for a walk and Sully says like, oh, like maybe Dr. Mike can talk to her. And Cloud Dancing is kind of alludes to like, well, actually... That might be the problem because Snowbird really never questioned our culture, questioned our ways, questioned these things until Dr. Mike came along. And, you know, he goes back to what he, how he feels about it, which is that you have to choose for the tribe. You can't choose for yourself. I don't want to abandon my culture. But it's funny. Like, do you think that their friendship, meaning Dr. Mike and Snowbird, has been a good thing? Or do you think that Dr. Mike's had this influence over her that maybe she didn't recognize and now is kind of messing with her understanding of the collectivist society that she's a part of. I don't know. That's kind of the question. Okay, so I have two ways that I'm kind of looking at it. Obviously, I am not, I am not native and, and don't have any indigenous blood in me. But I think something we've, we've definitely wanted to be intentional about in this show is trying to to, to learn and honor their culture, which we don't understand. And as, as white girls you know are never gonna understand yeah and in the same way that recognizing that native american tradition has been there's been genocides and they've been fetishized and all this terrible stuff so if i'm a native person and i'm watching dr quinn and i'm hearing them say this like oh it's dr mike the white woman's influence on this native woman that made her decide that she doesn't want to, you know, share her husband. I think that, I think from a native perspective, like that's a little arrogant, right? Oh, it's because the white yeah. woman said it. So like, there's that aspect that I'm like, I, if I'm a native person, I don't like that. Snowbird showed us she's more than capable of thinking for herself and standing and, and being a strong woman and doing what she believes is right without Dr. Mike. Right. However, it's very interesting to me because Sully as a character in the show, so now we're talking about just within the show, has been someone who's been very opposed to progress that has all been outside of the Cheyenne context, right? The, the railroad was a big one, but also just some of these people who came in and said, this is how people should be living their lives. This is what the natives should do because we know better, whatever, whatever. He's, he's very intentionally said no, no to progress. And it's interesting because he has always been so supportive of Dr. Mike, 
But actually, Dr. Mike is an example of cultural progress. That's true, yeah. Moving away from this traditional view that a woman is only good for being a wife and a mother. She has a career. You know, she's raising children by herself. She speaks up in in certain instances. I mean, especially in this episode where no one would think a woman should ever be present. So it's very interesting to me that now this is the first time in Sully's face that Dr. Mike's progress, in a way, is actually threatening I guess you know he has this real value for Cheyenne culture and so it's so interesting to me because in the beginning he's he's like oh Snowbird just needs to accept this because this is Cheyenne culture and I think that's consistent with what he said from the outside world but then there's this outlier that is Dr. Mike it's an interesting line to walk I guess is where I will leave it yeah, it is an interesting thing. And we all know Dr. Mike is influential. There's not a single character she hasn't influenced. But it, it's just funny when, you know, Sully's trying to give a solution and Claudia and Singh like, actually, that might be the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the next scene is kind of nice, though, because they're at the homestead. First time we've ever seen Lauren at the homestead? Um, I think you might be right. And it's interesting, too, because Dorothy's there. And I'm like, oh, the last scene we saw was... Dorothy and Lauren not really getting along. The song that they're playing in the homestead with Lauren and Brian on his harmonica, which is Oh Susanna. Mm -hmm. Same issues with Daniel Watkins, Kenny Rogers singing Jimmy Crackcorn. But I want to give a plug. If you want to learn more about the history of some of these songs that we've had in this show, especially in the context of minstrelsy, There's a podcast called 1619, and it is a five-episode podcast series, and their third episode is titled Episode 3, The Birth of American Music, and I learned so much about minstrelsy and black music and the history of this music in America. It was so amazing to listen to this podcast episode. I would recommend it to anyone and everyone. And they can say far more than I can ever say uh, about these songs and their history and their history in America and how they've even influenced modern music. And it's so good. Again, the podcast is called 1619 and it's episode three. 100% recommend. Cool. But everybody seems to be getting along very nicely. And they're about to eat dessert that I'm sure Colleen made (laughs) when there's a knock on the door. And Silly answers it, and it is Marcus, who is Dorothy's husband. This scene is weird, mostly because everybody's there. As far as we know, the only person that really knows that Dorothy's being abused is Dr. Mike. Sully knows, and we assume that Lauren is not an idiot, Right. right? But Marcus is at the door and he's apologizing, making a lot of promises like it won't happen again. You know, I don't want to lose you. I need you. In which Dorothy initially um, responds, you know, I've heard you say that before. I'm not going back. But sudden plot twist, he pulls a gun, (laughs) which don't know if you saw that coming and actually points it at himself saying, you know, if you don't believe me, or if I ever lay a hand on you again, you can shoot me. Because I would rather die than to hurt you again, and I don't want to live life without you. 
it's interesting to watch Dorothy in this scene because she seems very adamant about, I'm not going back. I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. But there's kind of a shift in her body language and in her, uh, what's the right word? I don't know. Persona mm. as this conversation is happening. And she actually decides to go outside and to talk to Marcus. And gosh, I freaking love Sully because he goes with them. Yep. The minute she like walked out there with him, I was like, no. <laughs> but yeah, I love that he's like, don't worry. I'll make sure he doesn't do anything. Right. From the historical point of view where Dr. Mike tells Colleen to never, ever let a man or a boy hit you. You know, we're like, duh, she should, she should already know that. But like historically... That was not the norm. And and we're going to see that conversation happen with the men later. Right, which I was going to say, that's not the only time that this comment yeah. gets made of like, oh, well, maybe did she do something to make him yeah. mad? And I, I like Dr. Mike saying, you know, nothing anyone ever does justifies violence. Yeah. That will be a reoccurring theme. It's a little awkward when Colleen asks Matthew if he's ever hit Ingrid, but I guess that's because it makes me, as a modern person, uncomfortable that that's even a question that should be asked. Right, right. But I guess for the time period, actually, they don't know, like, because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be weird if he did, I guess, you know, historically. Right. But that's so not okay. <laughs> Which, but I was going to say, we haven't really talked a ton about that, that like, yeah, at this point in time, obviously, there's a man And you belong to the man, in a sense. And so to keep you in line, you do what you have to do. And it's not this, like, crazy, are you kidding me? That You know what I mean? Unfortunately, it's it's not. Very unfortunate. And that's where it's super hard to talk about this episode and say, like, oh, well, historically, because I know that this is very real for domestic abuse victims. And this thing where he comes back and says, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean it, I don't wanna hurt you, you know, like is the way to manipulate a victim and what makes them not leave, historical context or not, but to feel like you can't walk away. And if you do, you you have no hope, you have nowhere to go. So it's just, it's heartbreaking. And you wonder what, what the big change was, right? And in the next scene, we see that Dorothy's at the mercantile. She's saying goodbye to Lauren. She wants to say goodbye to Dr. Mike. You know, Lauren's kind of hoping Dr. Mike will talk some sense into her. But the main thing that Dorothy says to Dr. Mike is that he says he'll change. The thing that Dorothy says is different is that he came all this way Hmm. to find her and to apologize to her. And they have a lot of years together and she wants to give him a chance. She kind of shuts Dr. Mike down where she's basically like, it's not your affair. I appreciate your help. But also, this is what we're doing. So accept it and leave me alone. You know, it's kind of a conversation over. But I just had to, like, figure out, like, okay, but, like, you know, what's that main thing that kind of switched in your head of, like, this feels different? And I don't know if there was, but the thing that she shares is that he came all this way, which is another reason I'm like, I wonder where you guys live because how far is far? (laughs) Also, I wonder, (laughs) I mean, part of me wants to be like, is this the first time she ran away? Because then, of course, he's going to... We all, I mean, Sully knew that he was going to come after her and it probably had nothing to do with his love for her and everything to do with, you can't leave me. Right. The next scene, Sully and Dr. Mike are digging up worms to go fishing together. Dr. Mike is very proud of herself. It's cute. Half a worm. (laughs) And then it's a little odd, but she just 
gets a little science nerdy and starts telling him about... This was weird. That worms are hermaphrodites. I don't get this. And then they have an awkward conversation about... They can breed with themselves, which may not be fun, but it is efficient. (laughs) I'm just like, what? Well, Sully's the one that says, like, hmm, that doesn't sound like much fun. And you're just like, what's... (laughs) Like, it's kind of funny, but also why? Like, why is this necessary? Do we need a sex dope in Dr. Quinn? (laughs) Oh, you have no idea what's coming, let me just tell you. (laughs) Can't wait till we get to that episode. Um... Well, and then it's kind of, I just kind of was like, I'm not really sure totally the point of this. I do know the point of it, actually, because we'll get there. But Sully talks about this, you know, legend that he says Indian legend. I don't know if it's specific to the Cheyenne or what, but is that, you know, man and woman were once united and the spirits got angry and actually split them apart. And that's why we have the two genders. And Dr. Mike is... I think still thinking about everything that's going on with Dorothy. And she asked Sully if he thinks that Lauren has been in love with Dorothy all these, all these years, you know, all this time. And I really like Sully's answer. He says, if you were one of the women, would you want him to? Which kind of shakes the conversation up. But also, I think as viewers were thinking about, I mean, Sully loving Abigail. Does Sully love Dr. Mike? Does Dr. Mike love Sully? Oh my goodness. There's a lot of a... Parallels in this episode. Just for cultural context, I could not find any evidence. That's not to say it isn't out there, but I could not find the story that Sully told. Might have been something they just created for the show. The next scene is a Sunday morning. They are entering church, and this time Lauren is at Maud's grave. Dr. Mike goes to talk to him, and they have a conversation about about Maud, about their marriage. But I think actually it's a conversation about Lauren. And I think in turn, you know, there's hints that he wanted to do better by by his family, right? Which Maud. includes, obviously includes Maud and Abigail, but then also includes Dorothy. It's a real emotional pinnacle that we haven't ever seen, I don't feel, in Lauren. Yeah. You know, Dr. Mike, being Dr. Mike, tries to console him and tell him, you know, one, concerning Dorothy, there's nothing anybody could do. And two, nobody can go back in time and change things. You know, everybody has regrets. But the scene ends with Lauren saying that Maude didn't get what she deserved, what she said. But Dr. Mike says, you know, maybe that's true of you too. Which, I don't know, what do you think she was... What do you, I don't really know what Dr. Mike was referring to. She's referring to like, oh, you were supposed to be with Dorothy. You didn't get what you wanted. Or if it's more like... I think, yeah, probably partially like the woman he loved didn't love him back. That's, yeah, that's hard. I mean, losing Abigail, losing Maud. I feel uncomfortable a little bit when they talk about Maud just because... And it's hard to totally understand it because it wasn't Orson Bean playing... Lauren in episode in the pilot so sometimes I think I disassociate the character but you know in part Lauren I guess it's not his fault either because there was nothing any of them could have done without that without that medicine you know Dr. Mike was just buying Maud more time but it's hard yeah it's just it's hard to totally reconcile I don't think he intentionally (laughs) let Maud die like of course not but at the same time, you know, there's this uncomfortable feeling of 
because of his pride, Maud felt like she couldn't always ask for help. And, and so I think maybe right. there's a recognition of that. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's a line that sounds nice on, on the page. But yeah, what does it exactly mean? I don't know. I guess that's for, for right. audience interpretation. Hmm. There's a short scene where we see that the Cheyenne women seem to be ignoring Snowbird quite blatantly. But we also see that Sully has brought Dr. Mike to try and talk to Snowbird. And he explains what Cloud Dancing already kind of explained to him. Like, it could possibly be because of you (laughs) that Snowbird is having such a hard issue with this. And he has a line that I think I previously kind of said, which is, you don't know how much you influence people. You can't just go upset the natural order of things. We have to get them to talk to each other. So they kind of split up. Dr. Mike's going to go talk to Snowbird. Sully's going to go talk to Cloud Dancing. Unfortunately, I'm not sure they have the same agenda. Because <laughs> at first when I was watching this, this episode, I was like, why would the women, why would they be upset with Snowbird for sticking up for herself? And then afterwards was when I started doing the research and realized, oh, this is not only a custom, but it's also cultural. And in this instance, Snowbird is picking her own happiness over what's best for her family, which in turn would include Cloud Dancing's family. So I'm like, okay, so that kind of makes sense why as a tribe, they feel like she's being very selfish. And then my other thought was, why does Cloud Dancing even care that much? I mean, obviously he cares because Snowbird is his wife and he doesn't want to make her miserable because he's a nice man. But I also, in my reading, discovered that a lot of those plural marriages that happened, the husband would be given permission by his first wife to take a second wife. And a a prime example of this was, Kelly, you know, uh, we went to the Crazy Horse Memorial in South Dakota. So Crazy Horse actually asked permission from his wife to marry a, a second wife at one point during his life. I mean, these are, like, I think about Black Kettle and Crazy Horse, like, these are indigenous leaders who very much lived out these cultural customs. Uh, But there was this value that getting your first wife's permission is an important part of taking that second wife. Hmm. And then there's a thing where Cloud Dancing sent Snowbird a horse and she sent it back. Yeah. Which I think is also cool because it, it builds off the establishment of this value of gift giving that we talked about in episode one of this season. But then there's kind of a comedic scene where Cloud Dancing sees Snowbird smiling and he's like, oh, I think she's coming around. And nodding. But it's more like, yeah, I'm right. He's a jerk and I should stick up for what's right. Dr. Mike's like, yeah, those men. I know what you mean. (laughs) And now he wants a younger wife. How dare he? Right. And my favorite is when Snowbird's like, I'd rather live alone like you. (laughs) And eventually Sully comes over and Snowbird walks away pretty immediately and Mike is annoyed and there's just this sense of like, oh, well, that went well. (laughs) Before that scene changes, we do see Sully notice there is a tall Cheyenne man, young man, looking at the new bride. That's all I'll say about that. Noticing her and Sully sees it. (laughs) 
You can talk about the next scene because it annoys me. <laughs> Makes me mad. Uh, yeah, the next scene is super uncomfortable. Jake, Lauren, and surprisingly the Reverend are having a conversation about women and how women drive a man crazy, which I guess this is building off of. Lauren didn't, he didn't treat Dorothy very welcoming, but when she did decide to leave, he kind of was upset with her decision to leave. And so now they're in this weird spot and they're like, we can't trust women. They keep changing their minds. Jake makes a comment like, first they wanted the vote and now they want to do this, which we have talked about. I feel like every time they want to show that a man is being a little sexist. They're like, let's have them complain about women's suffrage because <laughs> nothing says you're a jerk more than saying women should not have the right to vote. Right. And then for some reason, Jake wants to know about the reverend's sex status. <laughs> and then Lauren is like, oh yeah, don't make him answer that. And then he's like, but actually, but also, <laughs> I want to know. And then I'm just like, why joseph anderson the writer of this episode i'm just like why why is this why is this a scene hermaphrodites and pastors <laughs> yeah well then i'm also like confused because the reverend's like really coy about it of like that's between me and god and the woman and you're just like okay what is going on right i mean <laughs> I, I mean part of you would just ex i think expect him to be like uh no, because, you know, biblically, I'm saving myself for marriage. But then I remember, we don't know about the reverend's life before he became a reverend. So I guess there's that. But it's also, this is the second time this has happened. Remember when they gave, in uh, Rite of Passage, they gave Matthew a hard time about his... Mm -hmm. Anyway, <laughs> this is a family-friendly show. And then they put stuff like that in. And I'm like, what is happening <laughs> Why is this a conversation that we thought would be appropriate for? It's literally just a setup for them to complain about women. And then Dorothy shows up showing that actually men can be the worst because Dorothy is back on horseback and she looks worse than before. She's been beat up. I'll set up the next scene, which of course is Dorothy getting medical care at the clinic in the 1870s, which is going to be after or around the time we assume that our story is taking place this is when the first listen listen to this wording kelly in the 1870s was the first time certain states banned a man's rights to beat his family what year in the 1870s they banned a man's rights to beat his Just... family isn't that, isn't that just make you so mad? <laughs> so then it wouldn't be until the, the 1960s that the feminist movement would actually have those laws be more than, you know, moderately enforced. So not only do we have some states banning a man from his right to beat his family, but it's not until almost 100 years later that women step up and say, hey, we have these laws. Can you actually enforce them? And it's not until the 1980s, the 1980s, where the adoption of legislation that made consequences for domestic abuse were, were established in, in the court of law. 
Hmm. The reason I bring this up is because at the clinic, Dr. Mike tells Dorothy that they can take this issue to the law, and Dorothy says something along the lines of, the law doesn't work. Because she's tried. And for this time period, she's 100% right. Right. And I also think it's important to mention, we've spent a lot of time talking about this episode because the scenario in this episode is a woman being abused by a man, but obviously that's not the only case. Yeah, totally. Dorothy also mentions that now because her marriage is over for sure, she says that Marcus will not be coming after her, which question mark. Yeah. Wondering what that means. But that she's going to be in Colorado Springs and she needs a job. And so they start talking about what she likes, what she can do, and it turns out she likes writing. So Dr. Mike says, well, maybe you could start a newspaper. You know, and they kind of think up this whole idea about how Dorothy could have a newspaper and they could sell issues of it on Lauren's countertop in the mercantile, in which Lauren states... He does not have any room on his counter. There is no room on his counter. Doesn't matter if Dorothy has cleaned up, made more room. He doesn't have room for it. And then (laughs) Dr. Mike mentions that Dorothy can call her Dr. Mike. But Dorothy instead decides to ask if she could call her Michaela. So we will see for the rest of this episode that Dorothy actually calls Dr. Mike Michaela. One of the few people, if not the only, that calls her by her given name. Suddenly, a man rushes up with a wagon. Okay, this, this, this probably plays in a little bit to your question about where the Jennings lived because it's really confusing that this man shows up and says, get the law, my boss is dead, and it turns out that the man dead in the back of the wagon is Marcus, Dorothy's husband, And I don't know why the employee brought him to Colorado Springs because we do have this, like you already mentioned, we have this hint that they don't live near Colorado Springs, but somehow the employee knew to load him up in a wagon and bring him to Colorado Springs where there's no law, right? Because then they're like, we need to, Horace, you need to send for a marshal and a judge. And he... Horace arrests Dorothy on suspected murder. And then the really weird part, I don't know why it's weird to me, but it's weird because the the employee, she murdered him with, with this. With this. And you're like, are we watching Tangled? What's happening? Unfortunately, <laughs> death by skillet cannot be unseen as, yeah, a Disney movie trope anymore but i guess at the time it was like a woman's perfect murder weapon (laughs) cast iron skillet (laughs) okay we shouldn't laugh because he died i'm not laughing (laughs) oh yeah but it just yeah this is a scene where it's a little hard for me to suspend my disbelief that the employee brought marcus to exactly where (laughs) Dorothy is. You could probably make sense of it being like, oh, he probably heard from Marcus that she went to Colorado Springs to escape, so he assumes that's where she's gone. You could probably make sense of it, but yeah, it is a little, like, random, and it's a little like, oh, that all happened quickly. And also, I just don't really like Jake that much. (laughs) And they put a lot of pressure on Horace. They put so much pressure on Horace. At the end of the scene, they pan to Lauren, who looks 
oh gosh, Orson being such a good actor, he looks destroyed over the whole yeah. thing, you know, just absolutely destroyed. Well, and we're questioning it too because she made that like weird comment of like, don't worry, he's not following me this time. And you're like, girl, what? <laughs> Did you murder someone? <laughs> yeah, I know. It doesn't make her look great in this scene. But she is also does react upset and the next scene is in the jail which plot twist did we know that we had a jail <laughs> because i'm pretty sure that when when john ingrid's brother yeah, was, was in trouble they just kept him in the church which i think would have that would have made more sense to call that episode sanctuary, sanctuary. because that's literally ancient not ancient but that's literally the traditional meaning of sanctuary was if you went into a church and proclaimed sanctuary then the law could not enter and and pull you out of this church i'm having flashbacks of hunchback sanctuary it's another amazing oh my gosh i literally was like the only reason i even know when i learned that was hunchback of notre dame with such a good film gosh we're related (laughs) we were raised on this raised on disney animated classics yes in the prison scene, it does kind of bother me because Dr. Mike, the first thing she says to Dorothy is like, why didn't you leave him a long time ago? Not good for a victim. No, definitely not. You know, and I feel like there's already, and we all do this, whether you've been in a situation similar or not, we all do this where we think back of like, oh, what I could have done differently, what I wish I would have done. We already do that to ourselves. So we don't need an outside factor being like, what if? Why didn't you? And, and Dorothy gives an explanation, which is that they were basically broke with young children. It kind of wasn't an option. But she's also dealing with this thing that's everyone's made her feel like she did this thing. And she even states, I can't believe I killed him. She explains that he was coming for her. She was trying to defend herself. She grabbed the skillet. She hit him over the head. He fell down and was bleeding, grabbing his head, but that was the last time she saw him, and he obviously was still alive. So we get an explanation, but I'm not really sure we needed one. Hmm. And especially as her friend, as someone who has defended her on multiple occasions now, to kind of question that, like, even if she does get an answer that seems justified, it do- what's it going to do now? It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, nobody can't go back in time. And Yeah, it's definitely an insensitive comment. And I think... Dr. Mike is standing in the same place that I kind of felt at the start of this episode. And I think anyone who's been blessed to never experience any sort of domestic violence to just be like, I don't understand why you would keep putting up with that. But that's because we've never been in that type of toxic relationship or Dorothy, I don't think has, well, she hasn't said it yet, but she will say like, she did love him, you know? And so how do you reconcile being in love with someone who hurts you? Which I think to those of us who've never been in that situation, it's like, that's stupid. Why would you love them? They hurt you. But this is a very real characteristic. I don't know if that's the right word, but a characteristic of domestic abuse victims and, and situations like you, that's what happens. But also beyond that, this makes me think a lot about patients that I've worked with in a variety of settings just throughout my life and my experiences is I've seen this with domestic abuse victims 100% working at the hospital. I've also seen this with substance abuse, Um, Mm. you know, people that have an addiction or have some sort of dependence on certain kind of 
substances, whether that's alcohol or drugs or Mm -hmm. whatever. So many times I've had patients, you know, come and they want to stop and I'll see them a week, a month later. And and unfortunately, I've seen patients, especially because like I lived in a pretty big city, you know, the same patients come in and unfortunately I've seen a number of them overdose and not live because of it. And it's hard to see because... Again, not something I've personally struggled with, but it doesn't make sense to me. But you can see, I don't know, when you're dealing with someone like that, just interacting with someone like that, you can tell that there's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle, right? It's not just this black and white. It even makes me think about um, in the Bible, the Israelites going back to Egypt. And you're like, Mm. why would you go back to Egypt? Like, that makes (laughs) sense. Yeah, like slavery was better than, yeah. Right. (laughs) What? Right. I know. I think there's a lot of things like that. When we feel safe, when we know, when there's not an unknown factor, when we when we can go to something that we know, when we go to something that makes us feel good, that makes us feel important, that makes us feel loved, even if that's not the majority of the time, it can be hard to separate yourself from that. So this episode made me think a lot about those things where I'm like, I don't know if I'm still in that place of like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Because like, yes, but also, I don't know, you watch people go through it and You get why. You just wish you could do more to help them. And I think that's as a future provider or even, you know, whether you're a teacher or someone in medicine or a sister, a brother, a mom, like it's hard to watch people go through that and want to feel like you can do more. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really, a really good point. So then Dr. Mike does bring up self-defense as a plea Which the origin of self-defense actually began with the Normans. So prior to the Norman conquest of England, any form of killing someone was all punishable by death. So then it was like in 1066, they had this change where self-defense became a plea that you could make. This is Dr. Mike's second time, I think, playing lawyer, which is always a little bit interesting because we're like... (laughs) how do you get these skills? But I guess she's a city girl and uh, her dad was a prominent, prominent member of Boston society. And she went to college, so she she's educated, but it is always interesting the things that she has knowledge of. But it's okay because Dorothy needs a friend and there is no form of law in the town at this, at this moment. We're on the reservation in the next scene and we see that Cloud Dancing is still trying to talk to Snowbird, but doesn't seem that they've come to a resolution because at this point in time it's decided that Grey Eyes, who is Cloud Dancing's brother's wife, who we did not learn her name till now, but I like it a lot. Grey Eyes, are you kidding me? (laughs) Grey Eyes will marry Cloud Dancing. And Cloud Dancing explains to Sully that there's no other man that will come forward to marry her. Therefore, it doesn't matter what he wants, even if what he wants is to be with Snowbird. He has to do what's right for his people. And once again, we catch Sully seeing an interaction where this tall young man is looking at Grey Eyes. It seems that the wheels in his head start to turn. But before they do, enter Judge Jake. (laughs) Was the last court proceeding also in the um, saloon? I couldn't remember. It was, yeah. For John and Matthew, yep. Of all the places in the town that I would consider the most lawless, (laughs) I would say it's the saloon. Actually, though, that's true. But then I'm like, where would be the alternative? My alternative would be like the church, but that kind of defeats the the whole point of separation of church and state. (laughs) 
Yeah. As always happens, every time they need someone important to come, a judge and a jury and a marshal, they're not coming. It's so dumb, but for the show, I guess it needs to work this way, but they should just postpone the trial. Why are these white men with businesses so invested in this woman's case? Like, they really should have no reason to care. But anyway, they deputize Horace and say that it is his duty to preside over the meetings, which, again, I don't know why Why <laughs> um, he has to say yes. He's a government worker. I don't know. I guess, yeah. And then the jury is all men, because of course it is. Of but course. Okay, like a speedy and fair trial, you know, but I didn't look up when women actually started being even let into juries, so it's probably, probably historically makes sense, and I'm looking at it through my modern lens. Well, yeah, that's Dr. Mike's point. She says, like, oh, she's, she has the right to have a jury of her peers, which I think is the point of, like, those are not her peers. Those are random people (laughs) that you know believe in the same thing that you do. Random thing that I just want to be like, of course it would end the episode, but why do they have to wait for the marshal and the judge to come to Colorado Springs? Why don't they just send Dorothy to Denver or wherever it is that the marshal and the judge she could escape and kill more people with her frying pan. (laughs) So, of course, Jake gets mad and is like, hey, stop acting like her lawyer. We like, you go, girl. (laughs) So then the interviews begin. Well, not quite. Then they ask her about her plea and Dorothy is not helping herself because she's like, uh, yeah, I guess I did it. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> why didn't you say what you said to Dr. Mike, which was when I left, he was still alive. But you know what? It made me think about, this is kind of TMI, it made me think about when I, people, I'm going to say this and people are going to be like, what? It made me think about when I got interrogated by border security in Canada and Honestly, you hear stuff enough times and you're treated a certain way for a period of time and you start to think, did I actually do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Did I kill my husband? (laughs) So I think that's kind of what's happening with her. Okay, that's a good testimony. I guess that's good. Yeah, like if you feel like no one's in your corner and And you're being interrogated. And her husband just died, whether she killed him or not. He was someone that she did say that she loved. So yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I, I know that you and I both watch a lot of like true crime or listen to a lot of true crime stuff and sometimes we listen to the things people say and you're like, why are you making yourself sound so suspicious? But yeah, under pressure, I guess people say <laughs> mm-hmm, things they don't mean. Or Then Dr. Quinn's like, but she's pleading, not guilty. Props to Horace for being like, yo, everybody take your turn. Stop speaking and let, until it's your turn. I know. He, he really does like... He's good at that when he wants exactly. He has to Exactly. I'm like, why didn't you just say, no, I will not be deputized. We will wait or we will send her. <laughs> so then they interview this employee, which, which to be honest, listening to this man talk, I'm like, I think that she didn't kill her husband and you went in and he was hurt and then you killed him to blame it on her. Like that is the feeling that I got from oh, this gosh. guy. That this was a murder cover up and a framing. <laughs> That is what it looks like to me. And maybe that's, again, because I watch too many true crime dramas. But I was just like, this guy is suspicious as all get out. (laughs) 
It's so funny, right? Because I'm just like, oh, this is like a random cow hand that like lost his job that like is just like upset. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But I'm like, this if 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 this were Crime Watch Daily, I'm like, we would be looking into this man. <laughs> then Dorothy is interviewed and we learn that the abuse started one year into their marriage, which we don't know how long they've been married, but knowing that Lauren proposed to her and we get more of an idea of like how old Lauren is that he had they both have adult children I'm like man this woman put up with this for so long which there's like two ways which you know where where I guess that we understand Dr. Mike being like why didn't you leave sooner because it's been so long but then there's also this part of me that's like I'm amazed she left at all because don't you think you get to a certain point in your life where you're just like okay this is my life and she has she probably has no money, nothing to show for herself. Like, yeah, you know no, I mean? all her property, even like her children, like everything belongs to the husband. I think this is the first time we really learned that he was a drunk abuser. The comment is made, well, maybe you did something to deserve it. And, you know, and she's like, he always thought I deserved it. And I just can't, honestly, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to give that testimony in front of all these more or less strangers. Yeah, that's true. They are. She does not know them like the others know them. Definitely not. And yeah, that, that made me so mad when Jake is like, well, he only hit you when you deserved it, right? Like, what the heck is wrong with your brain, sir? Who's worse when Hank's like, Heck, I've done worse to oh my, my girls. Gosh. Except he doesn't use the oh word girls. Gosh. And I, it's so funny because I'm thinking back to the secret and how we were like, oh, you know, sometimes Hank, Hank has these progress. redeemable qualities. And I'm like, nope. No, screw you. <laughs> right here is where I'm like, there is nothing. Sorry to those of you who like Hank. But in that moment when he said that, I was like, there is nothing redeemable about this man. Which they're probably no. going to do storylines where I'll change my mind on that. But I will remind you of this moment. <laughs> and the girls are standing there too. Like not, I don't even know. Does that make it worse or better? It, it's just like, are you? They're definitely not going to stand up for themselves though. Me? But. And then Jake, it seems like Jake has to rationalize what he said. He's like, well, either she didn't love him, she didn't honor him, or she didn't obey him. Therefore, equals justified violence. There's a reason you're not married, Jake, I just have to say. There's a reason. I'm almost surprised, but I guess it's because they know Lauren is a biased party, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, why isn't Lauren saying, like, he believes her? I don't know. It's infuriating, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how to process it. So this is so random. But Taylor Swift, her big thing where she she sued this guy for sexual... Countersued him for $1. Point, her point was giving her testimony was the most humiliating experience. And she was giving her testimony with a photo and witness evidence and still yeah. felt so humiliated by yeah. the experience. And so that is with all that evidence. And yeah, like she did it for $1 because it was more about the significance of the event and making sure that she was speaking up for those who don't have evidence, who don't have, you know, the financial capacity right. to get lawyer, good lawyers and, you know, whatever. And I'm just, yeah, watching Dorothy have to give her testimony in front of a jury of 
men who are strangers and already have made their mind up. Well, not even already have made their mind up, but who think that it's okay for a woman to be hit. So it's kind of like, you know what's okay for him to hit you? You know what's not okay for you to hit him back? Like it has nothing to do with the fact that he died. It's just like you hit him back. So obviously you're, you have a problem. The trial has ended. And so they take Dorothy back to jail while the verdict is being made. And oh, Dr. Mike says, we all need to stand by Dorothy. And she's really talking to her kids and those that are around her um, saying like, this is the time we need to stand by Dorothy and let her know we're here for her. In jail, Lauren goes to see Dorothy, actually, and it's kind of one of those weird, like, movie nostalgic moments where he basically says, I thought of you every day. Did you ever think of me? And Dorothy says yes. I think he asked a question he's probably been wondering the answer to for a long time, which is, why did you turn me down when I asked you to marry me? Her answer is what we've talked about. She was in love with Marcus, and... She says, you can't blame me for the choices I made when I was very young. If I could go back and undo it, I would, but I didn't know how my life was going to turn out. And before that conversation can be resolved, Horace comes and says that a verdict has been reached. And the verdict is... Murder in the first degree, and the federal marshal will come get her. Now... Do you know about the degrees of murder? Because I realized that I didn't. I love when you ask this. You, it's just funny you get a teacher voice where you're like, do you know? Because I know you know, but I don't know. So please tell me. Well, this is what's funny is I realized I listened to so much true crime. And I was like, I don't actually know the different things. I know some meant you planned it and some meant it was an accident. But I didn't actually know the de- degrees of murder. Okay, so here you go. So capital murder or murder in the first degree, which is what Dorothy is charged with, means there was planning, premeditation, and malice to kill, which I don't think is actually accurate. There is no evidence that she premeditated hitting him in the head and killing him with a skillet. In fact, I think the skillet works as evidence that it was like a panicked decision. If she wanted to kill him, he Mm. carried a gun. She could have shot him in the face, you know? Yeah. I, I should also mention the degrees of murder. They were established in America post Revolutionary War. So it was actually 1784 was kind of the first institution. And in 1794 is Pennsylvania was the first state to adopt degrees of murder and other states would follow in the 1800s. So I don't know. I didn't look up when Colorado established them, but I don't think Colorado is even a state at this point. It's just a territory, I think. Right. So first degree capital murder is the worst at the time was the only of the degrees that is punishable by death. This is not in my notes. Do you know the first woman to be killed? uh, Capital, what? Corporal punishment? What is it? The death penalty? The first woman to receive the death penalty. Do you know who it was? This is like something I feel like everyone should know in America, mind you. Lawfully. I, I can't think quickly like that, so no. Mary Surratt, she was the woman who owned the boarding house where John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators plotted the kidnapping and assassination of Lincoln. And she owned the boarding house and it was totally never determined whether she knew or not. Until she died, she claimed she was innocent, that she didn't know what they were meeting there for. But 
she was the first woman in U.S. history to ever receive uh, the death penalty. Wow. Super random fact that I just happened to know. <laughs> okay, so then there's second-degree murder, which means it was malice that you did intend to kill them, but it was not premeditated. Hmm. Third-degree murder, also known as manslaughter, is culpable homicide, meaning you are guilty of killing someone, but it could be, and there's two different, there's involuntary or voluntary manslaughter, where you were or weren't trying to hurt them. And obviously that depends on the situation, but manslaughter is you were trying to hurt them, but not kill them. So that's voluntary or involuntary is you weren't trying to hurt them, but they died. This is most often used, right. and this is kind of horrible, but like in chi- like child cases, like where a parent leaves their kid in the car or something, they weren't trying to kill their child, but they did cause their child's mm-hmm. death kind of thing. And then there's right. felony murder, which I didn't, I didn't know the difference, but felony murder is where a murder occurs, someone is killed, but it was because the perpetrator was in the process of committing another felony and the murder was either an accident or something that happened. So this is most often used for like robberies, like someone breaks into someone's house to steal something, they were already committing a felony, and then the homeowner comes out and fights them, the homeowner gets killed, that's felony murder. You, it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't planned, but you killed someone to cover up, you were already committing a crime. Hmm. Crazy, right? Just <laughs> think about. Yeah. From my perspective, yeah. I don't, like I said, I don't think there's evidence of premeditation other than I guess their argument would be he'd been hitting her for years, so she had had years to plot to kill him. I, I guess that would be their argument, but I just, the skillet to me does not scream. Right. I planned to kill my husband with a skillet I'm like she had to be a really strong woman. There goes there goes Jake's argument about women aren't strong enough. If she killed him with a skillet, <laughs> the next scene. Basically, Doctor Mike goes to the jail and says we have to appeal. We can't accept this. And actually, I think what they discuss in this scene is going over the whole day's events, which I think I kind of confused earlier in the scene when they earlier in the episode when they were talking. Because Dorothy gives way more details now, which is that earlier in the day, Marcus started spitting up blood. And she mentions that this happened commonly. And Dr. Mike gets enough information, which the information is like, the dude had something going on. That's not normal. And so whether it's totally crazy or not, Dr. Mike wants to do an autopsy. She wants to be able to prove for her friend that she hasn't known very long, but Dr. Mike is a good friend and we know this. She wants to be able to rule out the fact that maybe Marcus died from other causes. In this brilliant idea that she has, she's walking to the cemetery with a shovel. Unfortunately, our major town characters are not too happy about this. It's just kind of funny because she's explaining that she thinks he died from other causes. She wants to, she's going to dig him up. And, you know, the men are like, you can't do that. And she's like, well, yeah. either you're afraid of dead bodies. I love that. Or you think I'm going to find out the <laughs> truth. Yeah. And their faces are funny, too, because we know that we know that uh, Jake specifically is not the best um, with the sight of blood. So, but I will say that is a common, the idea of the autopsy is not maybe for the time period, but also for certain cultures or even certain areas. 
is not a common practice. And again, we've talked about it in actually on the, our show about the movie The Physician. It's on Netflix. I'd highly suggest it. But um, it has to do with using dead bodies for the sake of science and education and medicine. In this case, an actual autopsy is to find the cause of death. Actually, the Italian Renaissance kind of saw a yeah. flourishing of the, the autopsy for science led by men like da Vinci and Michelangelo who wanted to yeah study the human body. But what's interesting, you said, I'm not sure how popular it would be now, uh, d- now being during Dr. Quinn time period. It probably was less popular in the West, but the 1800s is when in science, which I think is shown from the establishment of a lot of medical universities and such, but it is the 1800s when the autopsy actually becomes a popular, I don't want to say practice, but means of study and education and development of medicine. So it makes sense, perfect sense, that Dr. Mike feels quite confident with it and such. Have you ever done an autopsy? Um, no. So to do an autopsy, you have to be a medical examiner. So you have to be a medical doctor that's pathologist. Like, that's very... Have you watched one? So so there's a difference between, like, being in a cadaver lab and, like, learning from dead bodies and using them for science and versus, like, someone got murdered or somebody was killed and now we need to find out the cause of death. That's very different. Oh, but Dr. Mike does both. <laughs> I mean, Yeah. I have I been in a cadaver lab? Yes. Have I learned from cadavers? Yes, but it's very different in this case. One more thing about the that collection of scenes. I love the line. The reason that Dorothy tells Dr. Mike more details is because Dr. Mike says, I want a different world for Colleen to grow up in. I wrote that line down, which I think is really beautiful and also maybe the theme of this entire story like why like why are we introducing Dorothy with such a heavy topic but this idea that the choices that we make and the scars that we bear how can we make it better for the next generation I really thought that was a pretty powerful line I want the world I leave behind. Not that I'm the only person in the world, right? That's very individualist of me, but I want the world I leave to be behind to be a better place. But um, and maybe that's maybe that's what Dr. Mike's tapping into here—a collectivist attitude of, as women, we can't sit around waiting for men to make laws and rules that are gonna benefit our daughters. It's got to be us. Who takes that action and that's not excluding that's not to say that men can't advocate or shouldn't advocate for women right. but we can't sit around waiting for just them to do it we go together but someone's got to take that first step and who better than than us who have lived through it yeah this is true in the next scene we're back at the reservation and we see that cloud dancing is getting ready to be married to gray eyes she's on his horse the horse i love She's on his horse. (laughs) Oh, wow. How do you remember this stuff? Sully jumps into action. We've had the conversation of, like, if someone else wanted to marry Grey Eyes, Cloud Dancing would not have to marry her. So Sully finds the man who we know kind of likes Grey Eyes, 
before that whole conversation even happens with Silly, there's kind of this processional that's taking place and Grey Eyes goes by Snowbird. And Snowbird actually hands her a... Mm -hmm. It's like a necklace. That's kind of a big thing for her to do because she's been so upset. She's been very isolated from her community during this whole process. So it's a big moment for her and they kind of show that the other Cheyennes smile at her and can kind of acknowledge the fact that they know that's a big deal. And as Grey Eyes gets closer on the horse to cloud dancing, Sully says, wait. It's like that Taylor Swift song, you know? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Sully says, wait, but he doesn't want to marry Grey Eyes. He says, if there was another man. Do you think that was an assumption that someone watching was like, wait, is Sully going to volunteer? No, no, you'd be dumb unless you didn't see those moments where they're like, oh, there's the young Cheyenne man that clearly is interested in her. But Sully explains to Cloud Dancing, like, oh, like, what if there was somebody that didn't want to offend a very important, high, respected person in our tribe? So that's why he didn't step forward. And Cloud Dancing says, well, if there's somebody, sure enough, our young man steps forward. Cloud Dancing asks if... Grey Eyes would want to marry the other man, and she smiles and said yes. Actually, she doesn't say yes. She nods. This whole episode, this girl, yeah. I should I should have looked up her name. She doesn't get a single line, and I kind of want to smack the show writers. Like, why do you have this prominent... I guess they didn't want us to care about her. They just want us to care about Snowbird. But I'm just Probably. like, this poor actress didn't have a single line. She just smiled and nodded and like... But if you thought it was weird that this young man, which they do try and explain it away in that he didn't want to offend cloud dancing, but I found a Oglala Lakota named Black Elf had a quote, and uh, I linked to the article that this was from, where he was describing marriage traditions, and he said, Say I am a young man, and I see a young girl who looks so beautiful to me. I cannot just go and tell her. I have to be sneaky. But then he went on to describe how he wouldn't even necessarily be allowed to like meet with her. He would have to talk to her in secret before he was even able to approach the father to see his renown as a warrior and how many horses did he have. Because the Cheyenne, obviously, they were a, a tribe that migrated. And then when horses were brought to North America, they became a horse tribe. But a big part of Cheyenne culture was taming wild dogs, which kind of ties into wolf. But I don't, they give wolf to Sully, even though you don't really see many wolves in the Cheyenne village. But this was all part of their culture. And so it's interesting because it seems a little weird, like this kid who didn't say anything, but obviously was in love with gray eyes. But uh, this is also <laughs> factual that the way to ask for a woman's hand in marriage in Cheyenne tradition, you had to be sneaky about it and you couldn't just come out. And this is probably with a woman who's unattached, much less one that's more or less been promised because she already, it's kind of weird because she obviously already was married to Cloud Dancing's brother. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I don't know the if brother. this man has been in love with her or just saw her now because she came to Cloud Dancing's. Anyway, and then the horse gift giving comes back. There's a metaphor. I wouldn't want any other horse. Is this my individualist culture a little bit? Because part of me, we know Cloud Dancing loves snowbird but we also value that he wanted to honor his brother the tribe 
But he never actually says, I love Snowbird and marrying another woman isn't going to make me love her any less. Right. Mm. And I don't know if that's a failure in the writing. Because I do believe that's true. And so maybe the writers just didn't think they needed to say that out loud because he more just says, right. you need to accept this because it's what's normal and what's expected of me. And what's right. And yeah. But now the autopsy. Go for it, Kel. The autopsy. Dr. Mike is doing the autopsy and all the guys are there. Which, that takes a lot to be able to cut into a body. Sorry, I'm not trying to be gross. Especially one that's been buried already. Which, why did they bury him in Colorado Springs? Anyway, continue. How convenient. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Dr. Mike can see that Marcus has damage from drinking. And then she goes on to explain that he has gastritis from bleeding ulcers. Ooh. Which a little bit bothered me because gastritis and ulcers are like, Two different things. Basically, gastritis, you think gast is stomach, itis is inflammation. So it's inflammation of the stomach lining, which can cause somebody with abdominal pain or indigestion, bloating, nausea. And it can lead to a lot of other problems. And gastritis can be an acute issue or it could be chronic. The thing with gastritis and ulcers is they share a lot of the same symptoms. But there are, there are differences. Gastritis is more of a general inflammation when an ulcer is a certain patch of that inflamed stomach lining that is now eroding away. And so there can be a lot of reasons why people get those. Again, a lot of it has to do with that stomach acid starting to erode away at the lining of your digestive, digestive tract. Nowadays, we have medicine where that decreases the stomach acid production so that people with gastritis or even with ulcers can decrease the acid production so you're not having as much erosion. If there's bacteria involved, you can give antibiotics. Like, I I doubt Marcus even knew he had this problem. He probably just knew he had stomach pain, and people learn to live with amazing things. But his drinking could play a big factor, and especially when you have... Like, imagine, think of some, I don't know, what's the thing that erodes? Something that erodes over time. Eventually, it will get down to the lowest point. So in this case, let's say you have a stomach ulcer eroding away, eroding away. Eventually, you're going to get a massive hole in your stomach. And let's think about all the things that are in our stomach. Beyond the stomach acid that we just talked about that can do damage, how about everything you eat and drink? So now everything you eat and drink has full access to get into the rest of your the cavity, your abdominal cavity, but everything else can get into your bloodstream, which then could cause sepsis. A hundred million things that's very life-threatening. And this happens similarly in the colon. When we have a perforation in the colon, everything that's in your colon then can leak out. And so it's totally possible that his gastritis led to stomach ulcers, which then led to a perforation in his stomach, which then led to his death. It's a hundred percent possible And it can be something that happens quite quickly as soon as that perforation or erosion breaks through. I'm not a medical examiner. I don't know how you would 100% prove it, but it's enough to show that he had a chronic issue that led to an acute episode that could have killed him. I'm sure getting whacked in the head, like, did not help. (laughs) Because the the alcohol would thin his blood, he would also bleed more in his cut in the head. Right. Which is true that... Or internally, not even out in his head, just internally he would also bleed more. Exactly. He's basically having a massive GI gastrointestinal bleed 
So now you aren't having blood being circulated to your heart, your brain, etc. So yeah, there's a lot of things that can go wrong with it, but it definitely can kill someone, 100%. Yikes. By the fact that she can prove this, she then is able to go to the prison and let Dorothy out because she was able to prove, which I'm just saying, that's like an awful nice friend. I mean, we all hope to be friends like that, right? Who don't give up just because it gets tough or seems impossible. Even if she asked dumb questions, she didn't (laughs) doubt her. And she used it to be a teaching moment for her family, too. Yeah. Well, the whole town, even. I I hope she showed that stomach extra well to Jake and been like, this is gonna be you if you don't stop drinking. (laughs) Yeah. After she is let out, Lauren makes it very clear that she's welcome to stay with him in Abigail's room. And she asks for permission to work in the store, which he says no. And we're all like, (gasps) but then he reveals that he's given her an editor's desk with a hand press and a type box, which movable type boxes were invented in the 1450s. Pioneered in Germany, perfected in Italy, but she's going to start the Colorado Springs Gazette. I like these kind of, it's a grand gesture, right? It's Mm, more than just, you can stay here. It's like, I understand, which we didn't talk about, but they did mention earlier that she has experience in writing. And so this is like, I know this is something you're good at, you're passionate about, you're interested in, and there's space here. You know, I'm making room it's not just like making room for you in my life, but I'm making it so that you have a place where you belong and don't have to wonder, you know, because we said that, like, where is she going to go? What's she going to do? Right. He's giving her, you don't ever have to worry about all the things you've worried about for the last, I don't know how many years, 20 plus years at least, right? <laughs> yeah, it is nice. And we already know that Lauren cares about her, but he's had a, some <laughs> inner conflict within the episode, so... It's very, very kind of him. And as Dorothy and Dr. Mike leave the mercantile, they start just walking through town and they're basically being admired. And who are they being admired by? The town women. And the town women start clapping for them and smiling and following them. And I kind of love it. And I wish it kind of ended there because it's beautiful and it's powerful. One voice, one person standing up impacts the lives of many, many. And it's that baby step to, yeah, we want, I want Colleen to live in a different world than the one we're living in. And it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's super relevant. And then Hank is a jerk and he shoots his gun and yeah you're disturbing the customers then he like smiles though and i'm like i think they thought it was gonna be like a cute funny ending of like but like not really (laughs) it's basically like (laughs) remember that the men still think that they can do whatever they want (laughs) yeah at least in this town and think that they can shut women up right I, i think they're clapping for dorothy but i think they're also clapping for dr mike Oh, absolutely. They're not clapping for Dorothy because she whacked her husband in the head with a skillet. They're clapping for Dorothy, I think, because she was brave enough to walk away and share her testimony. Right. And to say it wasn't okay what he was doing to me. Yeah. And then for Dr. Mike saying, we need to find the truth. This woman deserves the truth. And this town deserves to know the truth and should do everything within its power to find the truth. And that's, I mean, and that's the hard thing is like, 
he died being a drunk and beating his wife. Mm. Like, that's not a lovely way to remember someone. And But still having people stick up for him, that's what blows my mind. Yeah, you're right. Didn't even think about that. Favorite scene? I just think it's, it's like just that one line when they're like, oh, I wonder whose teepee that is. <laughs> Cloud Dancing's like, it's mine. I think that's really yeah. funny. Yeah. On a more serious note, I guess in the court, when Dr. Mike is making a point for Dorothy, saying that they're... Well, I guess she doesn't really say it then. She says it more... Okay, I'm changing it. She says it more... Um, <laughs> I think the conversation she has with her children, although there's some weird things that happen, I think her saying that there's no justification. Or does she say that? When does she really mostly say that? I think it is on the court. Am I crazy? You you can articulate better than me. You go. (laughs) I like the ending. I like the women clapping. Yeah, that's true. And I like Lauren's gesture. That's true. But I think it's a big gesture because originally he was like, no, that's, I don't want you here. Don't want you. I'm not going to give you a job in the store to be like, I want you to be self-sufficient more or less. I like that too, because some of these episodes, you know how there's like a moral, but then we're always like, oh, I wish someone would have just said like, yeah, this is the right thing. Or this is why that's not okay. Like, you know, so I was glad. Before we move on, we did just want to reiterate the fact that we know that this is a very real episode for a lot of people, whether you've been a victim of domestic violence or you know someone or you're close to someone who has. We just want to mention that there are resources that are available for you and we want to make sure that you guys know what they are. But also, I hope that in this episode we were able to talk about how difficult that can be to get out of a situation, but that there are always people that care, that want to help you, and there are a lot of people that are trained to help with these situations. So in the United States, you can always call 1-800-799-SAFE. You can always go to the National Domestic Violence Hotline website, which is pretty cool because they actually have a live chat 24-7, just if you want to talk to someone about issues that you're going or facing. They also have a text number that you can text from your phone as well. Internationally, there's a website I really like called domesticshelters.org that has a list of international organizations that have domestic violence resources. So be sure to check that out if you're not in the United States or even if you are. And we appreciate you guys listening. And I hope for you, for those of us that have not dealt with this personally, that We also are sensitive to those that do, but also are willing to lend a hand, just like Dr. Mike did, to be able to stick up for people, provide a place to stay, someone to listen to, somebody that just cares. Always encourage people to do that. All right, ranking. Every time you say that, I just think stankin' rankin'. (laughs) Did you like it better or not as much as the race? Because right now the race is is nine, Out of 18. So the race is right in the middle. When I think about what I'd be more likely to watch, I probably would pick the race. Mostly because it's not as traumatic. It's heavy. Like, the sanctuary is heavy. Okay. So then right below the race is the prisoner. Oh, but I like that one. (laughs) Here's the question. Is this a better law episode than Law of the Land? I think it is. Yeah. Sorry, Johnny Cash, but I do think this one's a little bit better. Yeah. Below portraits, above Law of the Land? Sure. That puts it as the new number 12. What are we talking about next time? Episode 3. I'm going to get excited. Oh, Halloween. Ooh, Halloween. 
if we had timed this quite right, we probably could have hit these right through the fall season. <laughs> yeah, but they go through them quick. <laughs> any comments on Halloween? Do you remember anything? Yeah, I do remember. It, it gets weird. <laughs> That's what I it remember. It gets weird. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not a Lady, a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman podcast. If you like this episode, you can support us by liking and sharing our content on social media. We have our website, www.notaladypodcast.weebly.com. On Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, we are at Not a Lady Podcast. And you can always email us, notaladypodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We look forward to hearing your lessons for Sanctuary. And we can't wait till we get together again to talk about our next episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next episode. Bye. Bye.